Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. A troubling new report finds Native Americans are dying from overdoses at a much higher rate than the population as a whole. We'll hear from people who study the issue about what's behind the statistics. Also, we'll hear from a reporter who tackled misperceptions about Native Americans and alcohol in a state that has the highest number of alcohol-related deaths in the nation. That's coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Indigenous leaders in Alaska are voicing frustration after two parents sued Ketchikan School District over the use of tribal values within a local school. The meaning of one value is prompting discussion. KRBD's Reagan Miller has more. Posted in hallways and classrooms at Ketchikan Charter School are posters listing the 14 Southeast traditional tribal values. One of those values, reverence for our creator, is now at the core of the lawsuit filed by parents Justin Brees and Rebecca King. They are suing Ketchikan School District and Ketchikan Charter School for posting the values in school common areas. Brees says it's a violation of the First Amendment and Alaska's state constitution. We don't think that the school district should be speaking to any type of spiritual or religious type value. Those type of values are things that are best passed down in a family where your parents teach the students about their religious and spiritual beliefs. And that's not the place of government. But when Central Council of Flinket and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska President Richard Peterson looks at the list, he doesn't see anything exclusive to one religion. He says there's no common religion for indigenous people in southeast Alaska, and the meaning of reverence for our creator is different for everyone. Peterson says he's open to a conversation about it, but he says a lawsuit is the wrong approach. It's hard not to feel like this might have some bearings in racism. Um, I don't like to leap to that conclusion, but, you know, it's hard to find when you go down this list of values where we can't all, no matter what our cultural background, find a way to connect to those. The lawsuit was filed in Ketchikan Superior Court July 25th. Ketchikan's school district has yet to respond in court. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. A man has been arrested in connection with the murder of Jamie Yazzie, a Navajo woman who went missing in 2019. Last week, authorities arrested Tracy James for the alleged murder. Yazzie had been fatally shot and was found on the Hopi Reservation in Arizona in 2021. She was listed as a missing person by tribal and federal authorities. James was indicted on first-degree murder charges and domestic violence charges against three victims between 2018 to 2021, including suffocation, kidnapping, and assault with a dangerous weapon. His detention hearing is scheduled for Tuesday. The U.S. Attorney's Office for Arizona is handling the prosecution. Prosecutors say they're committed to addressing violence in Native communities and addressing issues of missing and murdered Indigenous people, including by working closely with tribes. The Indian Pueblo Cultural Center in New Mexico is commemorating the anniversary of the Pueblo Revolt this week with in-person and virtual events. The Pueblo Revolt, which took place on August 10, 1680, was a successful uprising by Pueblo people against Spanish colonization. 
The ICC is reflecting on the history with a number of events, including a book club meeting, a lecture, and a yucca knotted cord demonstration. The cord helped Pueblo communities coordinate the timing of the revolt against the Spanish. The native uprising is credited with helping ensure the survival of Pueblo culture. Tribal leaders are set to talk to California state lawmakers in Sacramento on Tuesday about water access and native rights. More than half a dozen leaders are expected to attend a hearing in a joint session by the California Assembly Water Parks and Wildlife Committee and the Native Affairs Committee. Tribal leaders say colonization, the taking of their ancestral lands, and jurisdiction issues have impacted access to adequate water supplies. State and federal officials are also expected to attend the hearing. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB who support this program. This show is supported by the return of FX's Reservation Dogs. This season of the original comedy continues to follow the favorite gang of indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma. FX's Reservation Dogs now streaming only on Hulu. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A new investigative report by New Mexico in Depth tackles the state's unfortunate distinction as having the highest number of alcohol-related deaths in the nation. But more than that, the report takes on a pervasive perception that Native Americans are both driving that statistic and are somehow genetically disposed to alcohol addiction. We'll hear more about that report later this hour. To start, we're going to hear about a sizable increase in overdose deaths in 2020. And the problem is much worse for Native Americans and other people of color. That's the takeaway from a new report by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that found a 39% increase in Native deaths from one year to the next. That's compared to 30% for the population as a whole. African Americans had the highest increase. We're going to hear more about that growing racial disparity, and we welcome you to the conversation. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's speak first with Heather Benjamin. She's joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where she is the Indian Health Board's Opiate Intervention and Prevention Health Educator. She is Malax Band of Ojibwe. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Heather, first off, when you see a 39% one-year increase in Native overdose deaths, what's your initial reaction? Um, you know... When looking at that and and then seeing when you see it and you hear it, it's often you don't really um, put the two together until it's brought and you're and you're seeing it and you're hearing it and you're also feeling it because there's so um, so many um, of our relatives that are dying because of this. It's 
it's pretty hard to um, witness and know that that's happening. And there's the only thing that you can do is just continue to educate, but it's, it's problematic. Now, Heather, you are right there uh, on the front lines, boots on the ground. Why? What is driving this dramatic increase for Natives and Blacks compared to other populations? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, like, you know, there's this, um, there's always been this stigma of, you know, the the chronic alcoholic or that chronic um, user and and unfortunately, even though, you know, we have, we have advanced so much, we also, you know, kind of tend to stay in the same place. And, you know, um, it's hard when, you know, people are getting arrested for being high and, you know, um, not being able to um, support their habit because, they cannot get jobs or um, other services because of their jail time or prison time. And it's, um, it's unfortunate that, you know, uh, there's so many things that are holding us back from moving forward that, you know, um, it's just it's almost, it feels almost impossible, but I know that there are ways that, um, things could get better if, you know, we continue mm-hmm. to move forward in a positive manner. Heather, you mentioned um, a, a lack of employment opportunities could be one factor. And let's take a step back to 2020 because there was so much going on during that time that could potentially influence those numbers. I mean, I'm thinking of the pandemic and, um, just some of the prescriptions that were available, drug policies. Are, are those all factors, do you think, that weigh into this calculus of this huge increase in um, overdose deaths? Oh, yes, of course. I think I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, with the, you know, when we had our um, COVID crisis, you know, a lot of families were without jobs, with, and that means less income, you know, and, well, you know, their in the income that they do get in, you know, it's like it can't support a household. So what do they do with it other than, you know, um, cause it's like, if you don't have the money to support a healthy living, you know, it's almost like saying, well, you might as well just use. And that's unfortunate because, you know, um, it makes things even worse than, you know, um, it already is. Um, as well as education, um, it's just it's it's hard to move forward if you do not have education to back you up to go and find those jobs that you know people are looking to hire, or even get the wages needed for you know just the person to live. And clicking ahead now, two years later, are things improving at all, or are they getting worse? What can we expect going forward? I honestly, I, I'm kind of wondering that myself, you know, um, they, you know, they've taken all these programs that they've given people money to, you know, help support 
their their rent and their food and their clothing and all the needs that they have but now they're saying that the you know covid's over you know but yet we are still seeing people that are getting sick but they the programs that they had put in place are no longer available so it's like we we kind of like bumped everybody up but at the same time now we're you know we're at the tail end of covid supposedly and yet we're still seeing those problems that are surfacing that happened two years ago, you know, and, you know, I don't see any way out of it as so far because they continue to say that, you know, um, they're finding cases, including this um, monkey pox, I believe that, you know, there's just more and more negative, you know, um, diseases that are potentially going to make things much harder. And Heather, you're there. I mean, you're working with folks that are suffering from addictions. You're working with these families. And and what are you seeing at the community level? This this huge loss of life and, and this opiate crisis. I mean, what does it look like there amongst Native people in the Twin Cities? Um, I think, you know, we think that we're, you know, our community has so much information that they would understand that, you know, the things that they are doing is problematic. But when you don't have anything else to, you know, feel good about or, you know, um, believe that you are doing something that is going to make your life easier or better, it's kind of hard to, like, continue to move forward you know, um, with the things that they put in place, the loopholes and hoops that people have to jump through in order to either, you know, say their children are taken away due to, you know, their drug use or because they're homeless or whatever. It's like every negative impact tends to like get another negative impact and another one. And it's, it's really hard for people to jump out of a hole that they can't climb out of, you know, unless there's steps inside that hole to get them to the point where they can be productive and be positive and show their children what, you know, um, what it's like to be healthy, to be, you know, happy, to be whatever, you know, things Mm -hmm. that many of us are looking for. Now, fatalities are certainly that worst-case scenario, but are you seeing other problems associated with substance abuse also rising? I'm thinking about homelessness and domestic violence and uh, other issues like that. I mean, of course, there's that because, you know, if people can't support their living, then yes, you know, no amount of money, no money that is being you know, distributed right now is covering one person alone. And yet, you know, so how can you expect a person to like support their entire family? Um, it's just really hard to think of, you know, all the things that we have to do without um, due to like the shortages of like supplies that are needed, you know, to live our lives, you know, um, the rent it's the clothes it's the food everything is like going up in prices and we're barely covering that and it's it's pretty detrimental 
when I think about it, if I didn't have my education behind me, you know, I, I often wonder where I would be at because, you know, there's times where I think I'm just one paycheck away from being where a lot of people are when it comes to, you know, their circumstances. And so... Heather, you cite the, the increased cost of living. You talk about uh, some of the policies that make it very difficult for some of these folks that are struggling. Uh, but what else? I mean, what's it going to take to turn these numbers around? Uh, you know, I think the, the continued support of, you know, making sure that people have, you know, that Maslow's theory of needs of, like, safety, you know, um, housing, clothing, food, you know, of all these necessary items that keep us feeling as if we're doing what we need to to continue to live a good life. You know, when you take those away, people, you know, tend to just reach out and grab at whatever they can. And oftentimes the things that they, that are available aren't good for us, but that's all that's there. And so Mm -hmm. I understand why they have those Addictions, but at the same time, it's like knowing why why people use and why people can't get off of them. It's it's like um, so hard to uh, um, it's so hard. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, folks, we're speaking now with Heather Benjamin. She's in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she is the Indian Health Board's Opiate Intervention and Prevention Health Educator, and she's talking about some startling numbers with regard to the increase in Native overdose deaths uh, back in 2020. If you've got a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Really want to hear from our listeners today. We'll be right back. Can stronger connections to traditional indigenous knowledge and methods be the solution for housing security in the Arctic? That's the driving question in a new film that follows the development of an off-the-grid community and farm in northern Canada. We'll learn about the film and the aim to decolonize housing solutions on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Rising rates of overdose deaths for Native people is our focus today. As always, we want to hear from our listeners. What are your questions and concerns? Leave a comment on Twitter. Our handle is 180099Native or our Facebook page. Or just pick up the phone and call 1-800-996-2848. Let's get some calls going. 1-800-996-2848. That is our number. Our next guest is speaking with us from Seattle, Washington, by way of Aurora, Colorado. Dr. Spiro Manson is the Centers for American Indian and Alaska Native Health Director at the University of Colorado and Schutz Medical Campus. He is Pembina Chippewa. Dr. Manson, thanks for joining us. 
Good morning, Sean. I want to ask from your standpoint, what factors play into the rise in overdose deaths? Of course. So let me just preface my remarks that um, my experience is both driven by a keen interest in understanding exactly what your question has posed, the root cause of these kinds of trends and their ebb and flow over time. But I also evaluate programs of the type that Ms. Benjamin is responsible for, and I work very closely with the Fairbanks Native Association Behavioral Health Services in Fairbanks, Alaska, where I uh, work with consumers and staff and their programs, so I draw upon both of these. Um, first off, with respect to the, CDC, the recent CDC report, Sean, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are important urban, rural, and regional variations in terms of these trends and the prevalence of uh, mortality um, re related to fentanyl and other opioid um, consumption. Um, so I, Ms. Benjamin mentioned earlier some of the stereotypes surrounding alcohol, and I'm sure Mr. Uh, Alcorn will get into that himself, but uh, I would caution us not to uh, paint broadly all of our urban, rural, and reservation communities by the same brush. There's enormous variation among our respective communities. I think Ms. Benjamin uh, recounted very uh, pointedly and eloquently the social determinants of health that uh, contribute to the greater vulnerability and risk of Native people um, to substance use and abuse, resulting in increased morbidity, mortality. Um, she mentioned in the housing employment, uh, the built environment um, leading to the security uh, and the safety of everyday life in our respective communities. Um, those are enormously important in understanding um, the um, most recent uh, estimates of uh, fentanyl-related mortality in our respective communities. Um, and indeed, most of the work um, with respect to uh, prevention and treatment of this area is focusing on addressing uh, social determinants of health, in addition to such things as structural racism, which I think also underlaid uh, much of what Ms. Benjamin shared. Now, do you expect opiate overdose deaths to rise for Native people, or, or was this largely due to the initial lockdown during the pandemic? Well, I think if we take a look at many of the um, trends with respect to the introduction, use, consequences uh, of substances in, in, in our communities, that we begin, we see a sort of an ebb and flow. So uh, it's clearly related, I think, in large part to many of the consequences of the pandemic. I think that you pointed out, as did Ms. Benjamin, that when one is uh, isolated, particularly when you're a member of a tribal community as we are, in which your sense of self and person is deeply embedded in that collective um, to be reinforced, to be promoted and sustained. Uh, things like the most recent pandemic, which um, uh, affect all of those aspects of the manner in which we may gather socially, culturally, and spiritually, it has enormous consequences. And although we Native uh, communities had remarkable success, and a recent uh, article in the New England Journal of Medicine about five months ago indicated that the vaccination rates among American and Alaska Native people were the highest of all segments of U.S. society, 
we still suffered in the early days of the pandemic many of the um, negative and adverse consequences of the pandemic and with enormous toll, not just physically, but in terms of emotional, psychological, and cultural health of our communities. So I think, as often is the case, we'll see an ebb and flow with respect to um, opioids. And just remember, again, my um, encouragement for us to uh, keep a more nuanced lens, that there are enormous variations uh, in terms of, of where we live, and both geographically and in terms of urban and rural settings. Um, do I think that it will be a long-term replacement of, for example, uh, later in this series you, you noted that we'll be talking about alcohol? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it will replace uh, the uh, in nature and extent to which alcohol remains a major concern in our communities and its uh, impact on day-to-day -day life and our futures. Let's go to the phones. We have Yamie listening on KUNM in Laguna Pueblo. Yami, you're on the air. Actually, my name is Yami. Yami, you're yeah, on the air. Yami, yeah. Hi, hi. How's everybody doing? I just wanted to give a perspective from the other side of the cattle guard, I guess you could say. I, I, you know, I grew up um, in an um, alcoholic family, drug family, but also grew up in one of the nicest art families anybody could ask for. My dad was Greg Lewis, famous silversmith. I lost him in December. But check this out. He taught me about love and about honor and having no fear. I think those three things you got to really pay attention to in life, and I'm still struggling myself. I just went, made some money, went and got some food, and I found me an arrowhead on the ground walking home. And I'm telling everybody out there who's struggling, hush, hush the meh and cool meh. Um, just stay strong and, and do what you got to do every day to keep clean, because I'm trying. And I, and I thank you for your time. Yami, I thank you for your time, and I really appreciate you sharing that personal story. And and bless you, brother. Take care of yourself. Uh, stay strong. Um, Spiro, we hear from individuals like Yami, other folks, and they really provide a personal portrait of, of how these issues impact individuals, how they impact families, how they impact communities. And you know what what's what are what are the solutions? Have there been successful efforts to curb these high rates of of opiate use and overdose deaths and other related issues in tribal communities? Uh, well, first, thank you, Yami, for your observations and sharing those notes. I think he underscores for us, Sean, a very important element that factors into wherever one may be at in that uh, spectrum of risk uh, focused on preventing um, vulnerabilities and the onset of use and abuse and the adverse consequences to um, the treatment uh, of individuals who subsequently suffer from addiction. Um, and uh, his comments underscore the importance of the sources of strength, the assets and resilience that really does reside in our respective communities. Um, the challenge is, is that many of our current, uh, particularly Western-based approaches to intervening and treating, um, for the most part, um, do not emphasize, from my point of view and experience, sufficiently these sources of strength and resilience, both in terms of the treatment process, ensuring um, uh, the uh, relapse prevention and the long-term recovery of individuals. Um, from such addiction. So the, yes, there are. I'm not familiar with Ms. Benjamin's program specifically. I am familiar with those. 
in Alaska for the most part, and they're very bright um, um, highlights of success in that regard. Um, and um, we'll note, for example, one of the challenges we have in our communities, extrapolating from the work in Alaska. So um, Ms. Benjamin was talking about education. So we do know that um, many of us um, are relatively uneducated with respect to the um, signs and symptoms of fentanyl or other opioid addiction, um, and that we can do a number of things when presented with the initial crisis, such as finding a loved one or neighbor or friend or even another member of our community um, suddenly convulsing um, from overdose, um, the use and extent of Narcan um, for immediate intervention to save their lives in that very acute crisis uh, is really important. And those uh, resources are just now finding their way into the reaches of our respective communities. But it doesn't end there. It's then after saving such lives, getting them into that uh, behavioral health continuum of care, the next logical step is detox. And I will give you an example from the Gateway to Recovery, the detox program in Fairbanks Native Association of Fairbanks. Um, nationwide, the uh, rate of discharge and successful transition to treatment, detox is not treatment per se, among non-Hispanic whites is approximately 60%. Among African-Americans, it's approximately in the mid-40s. And among Hispanics, it's in the mid-30s. Among Alaska Natives in uh, the state of Alaska, it's under 2 to 3%. Um, so what we see then is a revolving door of individuals coming into as many times as five to seven times a year. Uh, we call it the revolving door with respect to detox. So we have to figure out once we've saved these lives and have successfully introduced these individuals into detoxification programs, how do we make that next leap uh, into ensuring that they transition into appropriate levels of care, whether it be intensive outpatient or residential treatment? And we have some remarkable experiments going on in that route in regard. Also, too, Jamie, you asked about some notes of success, I think. Um, in recognizing that um, a biomedical approach to this is an important and necessary but not sufficient approach to addressing these problems in the context of treatment. We need to introduce um, the social and cultural strengths of the sources of uh, strength in our community. Uh, we need to figure out how to bring together many of the traditional healing uh, resources that are alive and well in our community to um, provide that additional emphasis that uh, will support people in the long run. So, and there are examples of that across the country. Mm -hmm. Folks, we're talking about the opiate crisis in Native America. Give us a call 1-800-996-2848 to ask a question or share your concerns. We have Steve listening right now in Winslow, Arizona, K-U-Y-I. Steve, thanks for calling in. Yes. Hi. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Yeah, yeah. I was just listening in, and um, it's, you know, I was uh, telling the gentleman earlier that um, you know we do have a lot of uh, men, men folk that uh, do end up in jail because of their drinking, and you know, drinking leads to you know drugs, and drugs leads to you know whatever. And um, I was watching the segment on CNN uh, a few nights ago, and there was these two black guys 
that were in prison. And during the time they were in prison, they had uh, got into this program. They became fire, uh, forest fighters, fighters. Okay, so when they they did really good in it, one of them became a squad boss, and you know they got an early release. And when they got released, they applied for a firefighters, but they weren't accepted because they were convicted felons. And, you know, I think our tribes, all tribes, you know, all governments should, you know, get some kind of program going where, you know, like a probation deal and, mm-hmm. you know, give these guys a chance with felony convictions because you look at all these um, people that want workers, but, you know, you read the fine line and it says no felony convictions, no, you know, this and that. So um, that's what's kind of upsetting. You know, uh, mm-hmm. our government uh, should, you know, be instead of keep badgering about, you know, we have all these problems, you know, they need to come up with solutions, uh, you know, make some kind of program where okay. the guys. Okay, get sure. Into- yeah, Steve, thanks for, for calling in. And you know what? I, I watched that same show on CNN. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, these guys that had been firefighters in prison and then they tried to get into it outside of prison. They couldn't They couldn't do it. They were denied because they were convicted felons. And, and it kind of echoes what... Um, what Dr. Manson was mentioning earlier is, um, you know, you save these lives, you you get them treatment, you get them out of that critical crisis mode, and then what next? How do you make that next step? And of course, Steve, your concern is that there aren't enough opportunities that governments and other policymakers need to step in providing these opportunities. And I want to ask Heather if she could respond to that, because Heather, in your work, you know, again, you're working with addicts, you're working with families, and um, how 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 can communities, how can policymakers, better support these families and these individuals so they get the support, they get the assistance, and they get the opportunities that they need to move on with their lives? Um, awesome question. Um, I completely agree with your um the person that came on in regards to like how you know we and pay for, you know, the the things we have done wrong against the law. And then when we come out and we're trying to better our lives, that all of a sudden, you know, we take all these classes and we educate ourselves, but then we have nowhere to go with them because you can't have, you know, a felony or you can't, you know, um, you couldn't get the degree that you needed in order to, you know, be a part of, a program or organization or one of the areas that we have a lot of issues with is like peer support recovery um, people that come that are supposed to be there to help um, other individuals you know that peer support often comes from people who used and so they know where these people have been and you know oftentimes what happens with people who use they've gotten in trouble. And when they get in trouble, then, you know, you have to report that on your employment. And it's like, that's, that's the glass. That's the, the part where people can't get above. I know that we have like, um, strived to do other programs like the UMICAD is, um, 
a program that allows Native American people to get their um, their drug and alcohol uh, license uh, without actually having to go to school, but that they would learn from the community. Um, but again, you can only practice that at certain locations unless you work on the reservation. And many of us don't work on the reservation. Work on the reservation. We're out here living in urban areas or wherever that we are working. It's yes. There's just like, oh, you've done your time. Go ahead. Just you know, go make a life. We're not allowing them to go live their lives with. You know, the thought that, hey, hey, I've done my time, I've, you know, um, I've paid my, you know, back to society. And yet when they go to fill out the applications and are asked whether or not, you know, they committed a crime, that right there just kind of shuts everything down. And it makes mm-hmm. it really hard for people to okay. want to just. Heather, we're going to have to go ahead and take a break here. I'm going to let you continue your thoughts, though, when we come right back. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov slash IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There's still time to join our conversation about substance abuse. We're going to take a moment to look at another aspect of substance abuse that concerns Native Americans. We'll touch base with reporter Ted Alcorn about some stereotypes and the alcohol crisis in New Mexico. Please join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848 or leave a comment to us at our email, comments at nativeamericacalling.com. Really like to get all of our listeners involved today. Please give us a call, give us a shout out, let let us know what your thoughts are on this important issue here, the opiate crisis and how it is impacting Native communities throughout Native America. We've got a third guest now joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. His name is Ted Alcorn, and he is an independent journalist. Ted, welcome to Native America Calling. Thanks so much for having me. Ted, you recently wrote a seven-part series for New Mexico In-Depth on the state's alcohol crisis. What prompted your reporting? Well, it was really the data, um, because about a year ago, my editor was interested in looking into alcohol, and uh, I quickly learned that New Mexico has the highest rate of alcohol-related deaths in the country, and not just by a little bit. We're way, way higher than any other state and that sort of mystery about why that was and what was contributing it to it led me down this road, um, reporting ultimately on a lot of different dimensions of a crisis that's killing thousands of New Mexicans each year, um, one that's you know preventable to the, in the extent that it's driven by alcohol and that policymakers have really ignored in the state for, for many years. Now, did you find out why New Mexico numbers are so high? Well, there's... Uh, like uh, like a lot of things, there's a lot of factors. There's not one clear and simple explanation. Um, the state has focused on DWI historically and focused on road safety, and that's kind of been missing the forest for the trees because about 
90% of the alcohol-related deaths in the state are due to chronic illness uh, or, or other kinds of injuries. Um, we have high rates of violence and trauma in the state, and alcohol is involved in a lot of those. Um, but one explanation that I would often hear from friends and family when I was discussing reporting this, people would say, well, does this have to do with the Native American population here? And I think there wasn't a, a malicious uh, guess. You know, there's, I think, well known that there's some disparities in alcohol-related deaths within our state and across the country. But I started to realize that that was maybe a little bit of a blind spot um, because I think sometimes people look at those disparities and think it excuses the rest of the state from caring about it. Um, and as I quickly learned, the disparities that exist in New Mexico don't explain the state's elevated death rate overall. All groups in New Mexico have high rates of alcohol-related illness and, and disease. But the disparities are really troubling. And so for, for part of the series, I did want to take a deep dive into, into why they exist and how we misunderstood them in some, in some ways, how that's kind of held back progress in addressing them. Yeah, certainly. And um, the data reveals that even if the number of Native American alcohol-related deaths were in line with whites and Hispanics, New Mexico would still lead the nation in alcohol-related deaths. So this is not just a Native American issue. Why is that? And what's really at the heart of this crisis? Well, I think in the end, uh, alcohol has a pretty clear impact on, on the body. And when you're drinking excessively, um, it, it affects every sort of organ system. And uh, within the New Mexico population, although a majority of adults there don't drink, um, there are folks who drink excessively. And it's a lot of folks that are probably don't think of themselves as having an alcohol use disorder. Um, so part of this series is really recognizing that, you know, we need to think a little bit more broadly about the kinds of drinking that put us in harm's way, make sure that we're talking about how we can reduce that kind of consumption, um, make sure that we connect people with the right kinds of uh, treatment that work, um, and, and how we can make a state that sort of has a safer drinking environment for everybody. Um, but I think also, you know, it's about tackling some of the bigger structural inequalities within our state that have existed for a long time um, and that are, you know, uh, have sort all sorts of health impacts across the population. Now, Ted, another really interesting finding in your reporting was with regard to these widely held beliefs and stereotypes that Native people are predisposed to alcoholism, and and there are a number of leading voices now in in the world of psychology and other behavioral health. Uh, professions that are saying that that's not true, that's wrong, that there are no biological differences in American Indian and Alaska Native populations that contribute to these in health inequities. And I'm, I'm curious, where, where does that data come from? It's, it's fascinating to learn. Yeah, and, and I will say um, a lot of this, I feel like my reporting, I was really unearthing things that other people have written and read and said and known for many, many years. So I really can't say that I'm trying to hold up to the light things that I think many, some, some experts and, and other journalists have, and, and communities to whom it's well known. But these, these myths hang on. And yeah, as you said, one of them, I think, is that uh, Native American people have a predisposition either to addiction to alcohol or to severe disease. And um, there is a genetic component to addiction, for sure. About 50% of a person's predisposition is has to do with their genes as an in your control. 
But what we're talking about here is whether a whole group of people have a predisposition. Uh, and that is where there is just no evidence that Native people as a group have have a biological predisposition to addiction. And um, it was actually, many experts told me this, Dr. Manson uh, was one of them. And he said that this this is problematic because it fuels an often observed assumption in tribal communities that alcohol and addiction is is destiny. And I think that it because it strips agency from people who think that they don't have, you know, necessarily control over that destiny is part of why it's really problematic. Um, now, there's a growing and emerging, I think, understanding that the, the unequal treatment of Native people, the, the history of trauma and of ongoing, uh, you know, inequality is a contributing factor as, and is certainly those sort of um, socioeconomic and environmental influences are probably uh, really important in understanding these disparities and why they exist and why people may cope uh, with those difficulties by, through alcohol use. But I will say that even that, some folks pushed back a little and they said, you know, this is thinking about alcohol use in tribal communities as a response to historical trauma still makes it, and this is to quote a source of mine, an Indian problem. And, and I think they, they encourage me to pull the lens out back a little bit more and realize, you know, the conditions of unequal treatment that exist are, in New Mexico's case, a statewide problem, one that Anglo residents like myself, Hispanic residents, also have a responsibility for. And I think that that was just an important thing for me to hear, too, because, um, you know, ultimately, these disparities are uh, on the whole state to address. Well, Ted, you you mentioned uh, Dr. Manson is, is quoted in one of your articles, and uh, Dr. Manson, he refers it to it as a, as a myth that strips Native people of their agency. And I want to ask Dr. Manson now, Dr. Manson, do we have any guidance on on where that perception that Native Americans are prone to alcohol abuse? Like, I mean, where 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 are the origins there, and why does that continue to persist when there is information that disputes it? Well, I I want to commend Ted's treatment of the subject matter, very even-handed and insightful and informed by a wide spectrum of different perspectives. Um, this is commonly referred to as the firewater myth, and it's persisted ever since the colonization of American Indian people. Uh, in the introduction of, of um, alcohol, um, historically was a part of uh, life in some native communities, pre-Columbian contact, um, but it was with the uh, colonization and the uh, move westward by uh, many, particularly the commercial enterprises like the fur trading companies, where alcohol became used, became weaponized, if you would, um, so as to make that um, colonization uh, easier. Um, you know, it's. I, I think there is a uh, there is an enormous simplicity to that attribution that people find many Native people historically too is. Ted pointed out as uh, part of our destiny, um, or the presumption is part of our destiny. The, the simplicity of it uh, lends itself to uh, being embraced readily as an explanation, and it also uh, distances the problem and make locates the problem within an individual or within a group. Uh, again, I think Ted had uh, noted. Um, very appropriately. So there is a element of convenience 
and uh, security for others to adopt this particular explanation um, so readily in the firewater myth. And Ted's absolutely right. The early data from 30 to 40 years ago that sought to explore the biological substrate related to risk of alcoholism uh, were flawed studies that were small in nature and have since mm -hmm. been discredited by and large. So. Okay. Tim, you focused a lot of your reporting on Gallup, New Mexico. Why was that? Well, Gallup is, uh, is a border town. It's sort of sandwiched between, uh, it's in the western part of the state. It's just a town of about 20,000 people. Um, it's sandwiched up close to Navajo Nation, um, Sunni Reservation. And I got to say, it's been a, sort of the state's whipping boy when it comes to alcohol. And I say that because for 30 years, um, the rates of alcohol use disorder there have been higher in, in part because of that geography, because it's uh, a travel, a, uh, a place where people come to market wares and to shop and it serves the, the alcohol outlets that are there serve a much, much vaster population, right? Spread across these areas where alcohol is prohibited to, for consumption or, or possession. So there's been, uh, you know, public inebriation and problems with alcohol in, Al in Gallup for a long time. And well-meaning or not, uh, mayors there, legislators have called attention to the issue. The state's newspaper 30 years ago ran a, a whole series focused on the alcohol problems in Gallup, but kind of with the tone that it was a, a, a place that is deviant and in denial. And kind of, again, I think shielding the rest of the state from its own alcohol problems by focusing on this other place. And so, you know, I went to Gallup with a lot of care because I was stepping into a place that had been covered by reporters from elsewhere in this way for a long time, but where the harms of alcohol are really, really serious. I mean, there's 10 times the rate of alcohol-related deaths in McKinley County as there are nationwide. Mm -hmm. um, and what I think I found in the end, you know, just scratching at the surface again, because this is just part of a long series, but, you know, I spent time with Native um, doctors, counselors, um, law enforcement, representatives, um, and I saw a place that was more openly and more assertively addressing alcohol in its community than anywhere else in the state. The Gallup Indian Medical Center, which is part of the Indian Health Service, where they make do with, you know, about a third the resources for healthcare that any other American health programs enjoy for patients. They have rolled out some really innovative programs to, to screen everybody who comes into their emergency department for alcohol use, regardless if you come in with a stubbed toe or a fever, to make sure that people are connecting to treatment um, early when they need it. They've been really, really forceful in adopting an FDA-approved medication for addressing cravings of alcohol called naltrexone, which has really, really good impacts for some people. And, um, and then I, I spent time with Four Corners Detox, which is a new treatment facility there, not the only one, but where Native counselors are integrating some of the traditional uh, techniques that okay. I think we were talked at the early part of the hour. Yeah, and so those were really meaningful to see, too. Yes, Ted, that sounds really promising. And are other communities in the state of New Mexico looking to Gallup and Four Corners as models for how they can address their own issues with alcohol? Well, you know, the, the state has allowed McKinley County to adopt some policies that are unique to the county. It's the only county in the state that has imposed its own local uh, liquor excise tax. So it, trying to push the price of alcohol up a little bit to discourage people from using it. It was the first county in the state to close drive-up liquor windows, and eventually the state adopted that statewide. 
So, you know, there's, I think, hope in the future that um, some of the, the policies and programs that they use will be better known throughout the state. And I think that's part of you know my responsibility as a reporter, hopefully, to talk about that and raise up um, the people who have championed them there. Um, but I still think at this point, um, the state as a whole is, you know, just starting to grow a little bit more aware about the overall challenges and is um, yet to move into a position where they would be adopting some of those practices um, for change. Now, Ted, uh, again, focusing there on McKinley County, and you touched on this, of course, just it's such a, a huge industry, the alcohol sales industry there in McKinley County, and uh, it's a very powerful lobby, both uh, at, this, at the county level and at the state. And, um, you know, going forward and across New Mexico, it's alcohol is is very much a part of the culture of of many people in New Mexico, not just native people. And and the state is built around some of these industries, some of these uh, alcohol distributors and these places that in bars and, and whatnot. And and going forward, how is the state going to be able to address that that massive business interest that perpetuates the alcohol industry in is at the heart of so many of these issues. We got about a minute before we got to wrap up, but if you could have the last word, I'd sure appreciate it. Sure. Well, alcohol, it's a tough issue because it's not only is it big business, you know, it's a popular commodity, not the majority, but a, a large minority of people in New Mexico enjoy it. And people obviously who drink uh, in a de minimum kind of can enjoy it safely. So I think that's part of what makes wrestling with it really hard. But in our final article, we looked at a lot of the solutions that are possible for addressing this. And I think some of them, like like some that Dr. Manson mentioned, increasing Medicaid funding for patient navigators to help people get from detox to treatment, um, other kinds of programs to connect uh, mothers with indigenous clinicians. Um, and, you know, I, I think that those are all within reach. And so I hope that leaders, you know, wake up to it and, and also take responsibility for it. Well, we've now reached the end of our hour. I, I want to thank our guests, Heather Benjamin, Dr. Spiro Manson, and Ted Alcorn. Appreciate you all for coming on the show today and this important dialogue on increasing numbers of overdose deaths among Native Americans. Join us on Native America Calling Again tomorrow as we talk about housing security in the Arctic. I'm Sean Spruce. Please stay safe and thank you for listening. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. First baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.